coming at you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and with video here on YouTube. Hey, everybody. We are here for another Rock'em Sock'em episode, and this week I join back John Atak. Hey, John, welcome back to the show. Hey, always a pleasure, Chris. Always a pleasure. Big time. Uh, We are recording this today on David Miscavige's 60th birthday. Now, this will probably be posted in a week or so, but this is the day we're recording this on. And I couldn't, I also just the other day did an interview with Mark Bunker. And the reason that this show is occurring is because I got to thinking about two kind of uh, difficult, weighty topics that I thought maybe were worthy of discussion. Mm -hmm. And I thought that there is no better person I would rather talk about these with seriously than John Atack. So this was kind of on my mind all night last night, actually. Um, And that is the subject of redemption and the subject of forgiveness, Mm -hmm. right? And also the other R word, revenge. Mm. which also fits into this, you know, because sort of the other side of the coin. So I thought I might bring this topic up because it's one that we haven't really directly talked about Mm. and is not often discussed in the cult world or in the, and certainly in the Scientology world. There's all kinds of talk about how we were wronged, what happened to us, you know, what the organization does as a whole, as an entity, the David Miscavige himself, L. Ron Hubbard, right? These narcissistic bad guys, and they are. Every all of that talk is very, very valid oh, talk. Yeah. So now we get into this new thing, and like I said, I wanted to sort of consult with John on this because because um, you are definitely one of the most well-read people I know, and also have thought these things through. I find myself playing catch up with you in many ways. Uh, over the years as to things you've already gone through or covered or looked into or gone down the rabbit holes of. So I thought this might be something we should talk about. Um, specifically, my to, 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 frame, to finish framing this, um, my interview with Mark Bunker, um, which if this all goes according to plan, should have been posted a week ago, um, he talked specifically about the Lisa McPherson Trust and when, when he was involved in that. And that was a little operation set up in Clearwater right on Flag's doorstep uh, in the year, what, 99, 2000, 2001. Mm-hmm. Scientology just completely destroyed that thing and ruined Bob Minton, the guy who started it, in the process. Well, Mark Bunker was one of the people who worked there. Mm-hmm. And he pointed out in my interview with him something that really kind of startled me. It shouldn't have. I knew this already, but it startled me when he said it out loud. And that was that Mike Rinder, who has been one of the most powerful uh, critics of Scientology since coming out in the mid-2000s, working on the show with Leah Remini on Scientology in the Aftermath and publishing a blog that he posts every day and doing numerous other things. Um, So he's clearly now not a Scientologist, not a Sea Org member, has no loyalty to that whatsoever and wants to you know, fight back against that group. There's no question about that. And yet he's the same guy who literally ruined Bob Minton and took out Mark Bunker and all the rest of the LMT. And Mark Bunker today, as a member of the Clearwater City Council, has Mike Rinder as a friend, ally, person he works closely with in his life. 
And he has completely forgiven him. And it really got me thinking about that and about this idea of redemption and what does it take to accomplish redemption? And what does that even mean? And that sort of thing. So I thought this was a worthy topic to discuss. And that's sort of the framing of it. I have said a few times in questions and answers um, that there are a small handful of people, literally less than five people, who I have a very hard time thinking I could ever forgive mm. for some of the wrongs that they committed against me as a, as a Sea Org member. They were all Sea Org members. Yeah. And, um, and I maintain that. But now, now I'm really rethinking that. You know, because if Mark Bunker, who is a gentleman and a saint and a really, really wonderful man, yeah. if he could forgive Mike Rinder and call him friend now, mm. well, he had things done to him that were far worse than anything that was done to me by these people I'm talking about, not by Scientology in general. I did an RPF program. There ain't nothing like that. But um, anyway, that's the context which with I'm looking at this. And I thought, what thoughts have you given to about this and, and, and the nature of, of redemption and forgiveness? Um, a fair amount. Um, it, it, it is an essential topic because I have seen people burn themselves up with hatred, um, sadly, somewhat, sometimes towards me. You know, I've been the object of their hatred. Um, one person who determined to drive me to suicide by wrecking my relationships all around and um, doing everything possible to attack me. And this was not a Scientologist, this was an ex-Scientologist who was not an independent, but who had decided that and said that the world would be a much better place if I were dead. Wow. And, um, that, you know, that was a very strange situation to be in, which led to many complexities in my life. That a number of people who had, I presumed to be good friends, turned against me. Um, two of them indeed wrote um, affidavits against me, uh, which fortunately I could disprove from documentary evidence. So, you know, that wasn't too worrying. It was very interesting to see the way that the... Um, that feelings were roused and that, that people be, be, could be brought into this little hate group with me as the focus. And it was very disturbing. It was, it had a couple of very difficult years dealing with it. You know, there were court actions involved. It was most unpleasant. And I had to consider my feeling towards other people. And as we said elsewhere, my trust in other people changed um with a kind of resigned feeling that you know I'd, I'd understood that you can't keep anything out of court you know the only private relationship you actually have in your life is with your lawyer that um, anything else can be demanded so um your friends may end up testifying against you um because they're under oath and that's what they're doing and let me say that in all the years that that I was under oath and on the witness stand or involved in proceedings, I never once distorted the truth in any way. And I came to understand that I was pretty much unique in that. 
as I talk with people, their willingness to corrupt the truth is astonishing. Um, I simply felt that in that situation that, that my integrity was there and I have to say, you know, what was real. And, you know, there were some close moments because certainly there was one instance, in fact, one of the people who attacked me, um, I defended and I knew something about this person that would have got them into a lot of trouble. And thankfully, I was never asked a question about it on the witness stand. So, but uh, very, you know, very mixed feelings about how trustworthy people are that almost anyone can be persuaded to think otherwise about you. Um, they don't need evidence. They just need, you know, as Warren Beatty said, uh, people don't remember what you said. They remember how it made them feel. And I've witnessed that many times that, that you know, people will take against me because I've said something that brought up a feeling in them dis that distressed them. And when I've had the chance to talk about it and be able to say, well, I'm, you know, I'm really sorry, but that wasn't what I meant. You know, I, I didn't know about this situation in your life, and I wasn't um, suggesting this at all. Um, but, you know, often that's the sundering of a relationship, and off the person goes, and they've got this bad feeling. So that leads us to the notion of forgiveness. I am not sure that I have the um, superior position to be able to forgive other people. That's something that's interested me for a long time because forgiveness was brought to me as a Christian concept. And it was, well, you know, what right have I got to be to, to judge people that they need forgiving or not? Um, so that's a kind of abstract thing. So I, I don't really, I forgive everybody. You're forgiven. It's, it's done. As long as you don't hurt my children or my cat, obviously. Um, oh, yes. There are exceptions. Uh, or my grandchild, obviously. Um, but the, for me, you know, forgiveness is, that's normal. But as we've, we've talked about this before, and I said, I don't forget. I mean, I don't hold it against the person either. But, um, you know, if I know that somebody has a trouble, you know, has problems with, with an area, you know, they can't cook very well, I don't ask them to cook for me. You know, <laughs> it's quite simple. So allow, when you understand people, trust them. Um, we said it when we were talking just before, I, I trust people as far as I can know them, that the understanding I have of them informs what I will trust them to do. And my relationships, you know, I have very strong relationships going back decades with people that have never suffered any difficulty because both I and the other person in the relationship take the point of view that we're good people and we would not deliberately hurt each other. So therefore, we don't start reading anything into any subtext and, and things. So I think we should forgive. Um, but I think there are acts that, that become, um, you know, the, the person has to then redeem themselves by what they do. So uh, as I have explained long ago to somebody who had deeply offended me, um, I, I would be willing to forgive her but she would have to ask my forgiveness first. She'd have to realize that she needed it. And I think that that's the important part where somebody realizes they need forgiveness, that we go through, you know, then the contrition, the, you know, what can I do to, to make it good? Making amends, as Elrond Hubbard pushed on his tone scale right down at the bottom. What a narcissistic idea that is, you know, that you'd want to make amends for something harmful you've done. Oh, that means you're very close to death. You know, it's like, 
Okay. Well, as far as Hubbard was concerned, because he'd rather die than than make amends to somebody. You know? No, that and the no sympathy are two really interesting little points there that, that you mustn't right. have sympathy. Well, where's compassion in, in that? But And that is the point because it, it struck me that, that nobody is unredeemable. When I heard that Hubbard had, had died, I wept. But not for a long time, I admit, but I did weep genuinely, I shed a tear, because I had this fancy in, in my mind, having found out so much about him, having, I think, understood him better than any of his auditors ever understood him, you know. I mean, I think Jerry Armstrong probably understands him better even than I do, having gone through all of that material. And uh, maybe Stacey Young, who also went through much of, of the archive material, Stacey Minton, in fact. Um, but I understood him and have enough experience with psychology to to have had the thought that I wanted to sit down with him and get his biography out of him, debrief him, find out what he'd really done, and bring him to some kind of understanding of what he'd done. But that would be on visits to prison. You know, it, right. there was no way that a man who had committed such outrage, and I'm sad to say the same is true for me about David Miscavige, they have done truly horrible things to other human beings for which they deserve to be tried, whether in the court of public opinion or David Miscavige could still be tried in a court, a court of law. And I do believe in redemption. I tend towards the point of view that Ted Bundy probably is irredeemable. Um, but Jeffrey Dahmer struck me as somebody who sort of broke with what the FBI tells us about you know, or indeed what Robert Hare teaches us about psychopath, in that Dharma seemed genuinely to feel contrition. He really, at the end, he was doing interviews when he was murdered, sadly, in prison, where he was showing emotion about what he'd done and where he was, he, he did not fit this pattern of the without conscience, without remorse. And what's more unlike, say, Myra Hindley, who, um, she was famous in this country, Ian Brady and Myra Hindley were the Moors murderers. They captured and tortured small children and then murdered them. And they tape recorded the, the proceedings. This was back in the 1960s. And while she still thought that she might get out of prison, she kept making up this story about it was all Brady and, you know, I just went along with him and all of this. And then she was told that if they could find any of the missing bodies, that she had a chance of being let out and suddenly she knew where they were, you know, she'd been part of it. So I think the Myra Hindley characters, she actually sued a, um, a friend of mine, um, Jean Ritchie, who had written a book about her and she, Myra Hindley sued this woman for saying these things about her and the judge said, there's nothing that anybody could say about you that would be a libel given what you've done. So you're what's called libel proof and that was the end of that that case. Wow. So wow. I think there are people who probably aren't redeemable and that the best we can do is to make sure, you know, that like Hannibal Lecter, they have to wear the little mask so they can't bite your nose off, you know, um, that they do have to be confined and restricted. But I also think that the vast, you know, that's what 2% of the population, maybe less than that, that all of the psychopaths are meant to be 2%. I don't know how they get to these numbers. I think they use a Ouija board or something. I think so too, yeah. But I think there are probably a lot more people 
in the in our society who are negatively inclined than two percent and utterly selfish um but i do if if we then look at what's called the narcissistic personality disorder um my friend uh, kirk honda who's a professor in seattle is a clinical psychologist who says he is dealing with people who have this disorder and he is making headway. Um, our friend Jessica is a little skeptical of this, having also dealt with quite a lot of these people in the clinical situation. But I think there is a possibility of redemption and what's good for society is that that happens. What's good for us as individuals is that we do need to redeem ourselves, all of us. and. I think that's the, and we've agreed about this before, that's the process of growing up, becoming mature, becoming independent, um, being self-reliant and self-reliable, and then looking at you know, how do we get here, how do we go along? The, the process of living is, for me, a process of redemption. And that ultimately, and it's, it's not, you know, I'm not into flagellation particularly. Um, in fact, anything that hurts, I don't really like. It, may, it could just be me. I don't know. Um, I, I don't think it's just you. No, good. It's good to know that. There yeah. are two, two yeah. of us at least. Um, so I, I don't, I'm not suggesting that redemption is something that's achieved by beating yourself up at all. I think it's something that's achieved by constantly seeking to be honest with yourself about how you feel. You know, I look at you know, how I might benefit in a situation from somebody, you know, particularly if I'm in a, you know, occasionally I'll still have a client, there'll be somebody who, who, who needs my help, and I will charge them money for giving help, which I never used to do back in the old days. Um, and that's why I'm so poor, I think. Um, but in that situation, I have to look at what, how am I benefiting, the money I'm taking, and, and what will I do in return, and who am I? We both know about the nobility of standing up against a, a terrible group and, you know, how we might regard ourselves. Well, I did it because it satisfied my ego to do it. I'm willing to accept that. It's not because, you know, I'm a, I, I am an empath. I'm, sadly, I do test as an empath, but I, which I regard as a disorder. You know, I don't think it's an advantage in any way being compelled to help people. You know, who half the time are taking advantage of you. You know, it it doesn't well, really. Well, that work. part of it might be a little rough. Yeah, I, I I think the compassion tolerance part's pretty cool. But yeah, I get what you I get what you're saying. Yeah, and I absolutely. And you know, I think redemption for for most of us is developing compassion over empathy, um, where we, you know, we we seek to do the best in the situation, but we are capable of seeing how somebody might be seeking to exploit us and you know nonetheless carrying on you know as i've said before i had many scientology agents come to me and i had to treat them the same way i'd treat anybody i'll answer your questions and uh, i was very gratified when the investigation aid told me that that the problem with running agents against me was that sooner or later <clears throat> they'd come along and say i can't do this anymore he's such a nice guy <laughs> I had the guy who ran the last mission against me, the one that bankrupted me, Greg Ryerson. He told somebody who went back to Scientology and then came out that I wasn't really a suppressive person. He'd spent this time with me and he was going to save me in my next lifetime. <laughs> like, Thanks, Greg. Wow, <laughs> and, man. Uh, 
but he might look for a little bit of redemption himself. The, the point I, Mike Rinder was also involved in harassing me, of course, because he was involved in harassing any, everybody. He, I think to his chagrin, cannot remember what he did to me. Now, as it was going on for 10 years, I, I am, yeah, there must be a whole area of his life that's just closed down. And I have met that in, in people who did this before. He's certainly not the only one. I would quite like for him to talk with me about what he'd done. But if he can't remember it, he can't really do that, can he? I would quite like for him to apologize to me because this did affect my children. You know, my two older children were much affected by living in East Grinstead where, you know, other kids would disconnect from them in the play playground and people would come hammering on my door at 11 o'clock at night demanding that I explain why I'd told that, persuaded their girlfriend not to talk to them, which of course hadn't happened or, or, or whatever. But my kids went through that. They saw protesters on the street with placards. So whatever part in that Mike Rinder played, it would be nice. But I think he's kind of done so much to, to help that I've never even thought about forgiving him, you know, that, that he's redeemed himself with his incredible courage and, and you know, his determination to tell the truth. Because we, we had Mark Rathbun, you know, emerge at the same time, who is just a truly awful person. I'm sorry, if he wants to sue me, he can. Um, selfish, you know, concerned with building his own um, ego. And again, you know, so what he harmed Miscavige and Scientology uh, by telling some part of the truth. And, and that's great. That's really good. But I feel Mike Rinder redeemed himself, whereas Mark Rathbun didn't. Mark Rathbun still needs to face his own demons and look at what he did. I particularly like, like him to look at what he did to Jerry Armstrong because, um, you know, it was deeply offensive that having left Scientology, he then carried on this pretense that Jerry had somehow been involved in some, you know, devious attempt to undermine Scientology, when what had really happened was that Mark Rathbun and Gene Ingram had got together and got Jerry to say that, yes, he would be able to forge documents, which Jerry being Jerry and very precise is true. He would be able, but Jerry being Jerry wouldn't do it because Jerry, in my long experience of him going back to 1984, is an extraordinarily ethical human being who really does care about other people and, and doing things. So I, I would very much like it if I presume that Mark Rathbun watches all of your broadcasts. <laughs> I, I'd very much like it if he would think about what he's done and apologize to Jerry. That would be great. But, and uh, you know, so, so yeah, that, that, there you go. I've said a lot about this. What do you have <laughs> Well, there is. Well, you know, while you were talking, of course, many, many things occurred to me. And, and I think I'll start with redeem, the word. Mm. redemption right re deem deem. again I, I mean i hadn't yeah exactly to deem again and i thought about that and i went huh you know it, sometimes there's there's quite a bit to be realized just by just in taking apart a word I mean, maybe that's a you know something that came out of scientology with because of all the emphasis on thing. words there you know yeah it's one of those good things yeah um but to look at again to evaluate again right how you deem a thing and and that requires action it requires a cause a cause to look again, a cause, a reason to 
reevaluate a thing. And it was interesting uh, looking back in history here, short history of Mike and Marty coming out of Scientology, right? And uh, both at the same time, both did videos together, talked about the you know times in Scientology, things they had done, things that had happened. Uh, then started kind of separating because it became clear that they were not really on the same page and that Mark Rathman moved forward with this lawsuit and we were all gung-ho about it. We all thought he was going to be this torchbearer and he was doing this great thing and then uh, turned to, and yet the whole time he was doing that, there were these flags, right? There were these, these red flags of, you know, I reached out to him to offer my assistance with his court case. He just kind of totally brushed me off. Um, other people as well, I heard the same thing from, you try to have a conversation with him, it wouldn't go anywhere. Um, you know, I, I, I met him at the, um, I met him when I was in Scientology, but I met him for the first time coming out, uh, at the Going Clear premiere down in Austin, Texas, and I uh, went down there to see it. And he was there and I was like, oh, hey, you know, and I, and I sort of, uh, talked to him very, very briefly after the show. And he was like, yeah, email me, call me or whatever. And I tried. Nope, you know, nothing. And then shortly thereafter, he's pulling the case and the whole thing fell apart. And then he's trashing me, trashing everybody and uh, disappears. And you go, huh, you know, I stood up for the guy. I was willing to give him, you know, some degree of redemption, I suppose you could say in my mind. I stood up for him and on social media because of his actions. And then, of course, the character comes through because it always does. You can't really suppress that kind of thing for very long. Mike, on the other hand, has been the exact opposite road. And he's, still, he's held steady and true to his, his mission and his course. Um, so, there's, so, you know, our assessment of him is very, very different. He's, he's consistently a different person now. You know, Mar Marty sort of tried to ride a wave of, of enthusiasm and popularity because of what he was doing to stick it to Miscavige, but he never really did change from the person he was when he was in Scientology, which was basically an asshole. I mean, I met him when I was in, he was an asshole. I met him when he was out, he was an asshole, you know? So um, that's just, you know, I don't say that the world would be a better place if he was dead, you know, or some nonsense like that. I'm just saying the guy's hard to get along with. So there was no real, you know, effort made on his part to acknowledge and deal directly and responsibly and maturely with the actions he had participated in and taken and caused on his, on his own as a Sea Org member, as, a, as the second highest ranking Sea Org member, you know, at, 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 on the planet. So... Um, so it was their redemption for Marty Rathman. I think pretty clearly the answer is no. You know, has there been redemption for Mike? Absolutely. Has there been for me? I, I think so. I've not thought of my path as one of redemption. Hi. You know, um, I've thought of my path in terms of making up for some of what I did. Mm -hmm. Um. You Which know, I, guess I, think, it, I guess is redemption, really. Well, I re, I'm realizing right now, or th I'm sort of thinking through this right now, that redemption is something other people, it's evaluation from others, you know. Um, I mean, suppose you could redeem yourself, but, you know, that doesn't really count a whole lot if everybody else thinks you're an asshole, you know. Uh, so there's a, you know, there is a group activity here. I think, on the other hand, 
to contrast this a little bit, or at least how the, the thoughts that are on my mind about it, are I think forgiveness is the personal thing. I think forgiving yourself, I think forgiving other people is something you do for yourself mm. as opposed to for the other person. It's great if you can have the opportunity to be with the other person, tell the other person you forgive them. Mm. Maybe that will have some impact on them towards their redemption. Mm. But it's for, I think for me, it's forgiveness is letting, is, is, a, is a process of letting go yeah. of anger, hate, you know, uh, the, the um, feelings of revenge, hmm. you know, forgiveness is a, is a clear cut mark in time or line in the sand of, okay, I no longer feel vengeful toward you, hmm. you know, um, I think it's a necessary step for, uh, you know, it certainly has been for me. Hmm. And, um, and, and when I look at you know, at that Mark Bunker example, it really made me rethink, why am I holding on to these grudges against people I haven't seen or talked to in eight years mm -hmm. um, that don't care about me, that never cared about me? Mm -hmm. Why do I still give them any real estate in my head? And thinking about it that way and thinking about what they did to me, the harsh words, the pushing around, the, the punishments, you know, the, the um, certainly no shortage of yelling and screaming, but, but real physical stuff too. I mean, you yeah. know, the being up all night washing dishes and shit like that because the orders I would get from some of these people. Um, the humiliation that mm -hmm. would occur as a result of this, you know, the public humiliation, a couple mm -hmm. of these people who had been holding on to, you know, had said and done things, you know, when others were around, you know, very, very, very clearly to, uh, to humiliate me mm -hmm. uh, while I was leaving the Sea Org, for example, you know, things like that. So, you, you know, you hold on to those things, you're like, you know, I'm, I don't know if I'm going to be able to forgive this if that person, even, even you know, the, the full statement was if that person came out of Scientology, mm -hmm. saw the error of their ways, would you be able to forgive them? And I was like, I don't know, man. A couple people, I don't know. But clearly these two things have to go hand in hand, redemption and forgiveness, you know, because I don't think forgiveness is meaningful to the other person if they haven't earned it in some fashion. I do get how you can give forgiveness without having to interact with the person or without them having to do anything just to let it go. And yep. you go, okay. I'm going to let this go. I'm going to, I'm going to push this off. But, but there is still a factor of, are they really redeemed? Yeah. It, it, yeah it's a little, it, I guess it depends on how you want to frame this picture a little bit, I guess, but that's, that's kind of how I'm thinking about it. And I think, you know, forgiveness is, is, um, is a natural outcome. It's not, you know, and, and when somebody tries to force somebody else to forgive because it will be good for them. You know, I had a friend who was abandoned into an orphanage by his own father at the age of eight. And by his father, he was declared an orphan. And he was treated horribly there. The father knew this would happen because it was the orphanage he'd grown up in. Ugh. And um, this man has actually... 
he's lived a good and decent life. He's done what he can to help people. He was a peace campaigner. He's, he's done a lot to help people. But one day, um, while he was still vaguely of the Christian persuasion, uh, um, an Anglican priest said to him, you have to forgive your father. His father had died by this time. You have to forgive him. And it upset him. And he came to me, uh, thankfully, and I said, oh, I think that's just utterly wrong. Nobody has the right to tell you who you ought to forgive and that, you know, there's something wrong with you if you're not doing it. If I'd been through Auschwitz, I probably wouldn't have taken Viktor Frankl's charitable view of what I'd seen in there. Some things are probably unforgivable. And my redemption doesn't depend upon me forgiving people for doing horrific things. That That is not part of it. My redemption comes for me acknowledging what I've done that's wrong and accepting that. And perhaps letting go of hatred while retaining righteous indignation. And that's a very difficult one to, to differentiate. Um, Big time. I really couldn't agree with you more about that. I, you can never, ever force a forgiveness in order for it to mean anything. It must come from the person wholly and completely, or it is just useless. Because it's as as we're as we're contextualizing it and defining it, it is it is something the person is giving of their own free will, yeah. that they then get to unburden themselves of this burden of bad, ill feeling and weight and despair and excuse me, you know, all these awful things that we carry around with us when we've been harmed by others. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't think it can be forced at all. And I think it's a huge mistake of organized religion or, or people involved in that to force that on children, force that on, on anyone at all of any age, really. Um, so that's for sure. And, and, and redemption is something that does need to be earned. You know, it's not just something that you should just receive just because you're a human being or something or because, you know, well, isn't that a good demonstration of compassion and tolerance? Uh, no. Not necessarily, you know, not if the person hasn't, hasn't done something to show that they deserve a new look, yeah. you know, a new valuation. So, I mean, I'll give a specific example. And around about 1955, there was a former SS man who publicly talked about, um, I think he was involved with the gas wagons, where they use carbon monoxide to kill people. And he knew that by making this confession, he could possibly go to prison for the rest of his life. But he had come to the point where he felt, for his own sake, that he must say, I witnessed this and it was wrong. As it was, he was not prosecuted. And, you know, he is one of the many witnesses, so about 200,000 to these events, which some people deny ever happened. Um, but there you have a tremendous courage but also, it's the centre of um, crime and punishment. Dostoevsky's astonishing novel, where this student Raskolnikov, poor student, decides he can kill the miserly old landlady and take her money. And the book is about him trying to deal with his conscience after having. I've spoiled it now, haven't I? So that's another. <laughs> story. You spoiled crime and punishment for everybody. <laughs> And then Batman comes in and right, um, right. <laughs> but that that the normal, decent human being will be burdened by conscience if they've done something wrong. 
a lot of the problem is how wrong and right are reframed. Uh, as Elrond Hubbard said, uh, goodness and badness, beautifulness and ugliness are alike considerations and have no other basis than opinion. So as far as Elrond Hubbard, good and evil don't exist. Morality, there is no such thing. It's just ethics, which is the narcissistic idea of, does it help my survival? That's exactly. you know, not a very good system or an all. I think that determining what is good and evil and often leaving an authoritarian group, a cult group, a destructive cult group, an abusive group, an abusive relationship, you are faced with the reality that your schema of good and evil was completely wrong. That, um, you know, murdering all the Jews wasn't actually going to help humanity in any way at all. Um, and so people can come away and then it can be very difficult. I think for Mark Rathburn, and I, I tried to read uh, Memoirs of Scientology Warrior, his first book, and uh, I think it was the first book written by a Scientologist that I failed to finish. So I must have had a misunderstood word. Um, maybe it was the word warrior. Uh, <laughs> but what I was reading was uh, the autobiography of a narcissist mm-hmm. right from the start. It, it was this guy who, who'd got this big idea about himself that although he's, well, he's only a class four auditor or something, and yet he conceived himself as the, the head of the new Scientology. He was going to be the next Elrond Hubbard. It, it, and it was sort of, just take a look in the mirror, guy. You know, we're, we're people. And uh, no, you don't have special knowledge. You know, particularly, I was particularly insulted that he started talking about Lao Tzu and said, you know, talking about Taoism when he obviously had not the slightest understanding of what it means. And that then he appears to have been bought off, that the court case went away. But, you know, it might well be that he has a monthly salary because that's the way, you know, little David worked it out, that you don't give people a chunk of change and then hope you give them a salary. And I think the threat that was made clear in Louis Theroux's My Louis Theroux movie, um, where he's faced, and he, it said to him near the end of it by the Scientologist cameraman, is this getting you your nut? And how are things with the kid? And that video went straight back six months before Louis Theroux issued the thing, and they realized that they'd found the weak point. All we have to do is make one nasty report and your adopted child will be taken away from you. And so his wife dropped her case with no explanation. Right. But I am speculating. Um, <laughs> Clearly. Pure speculation, John. Pure speculation. Unfounded. Unbelievable. I can't But he would have to have some recognition, some point of saying that the system of ethics that he had subscribed to, which meant that people like you and me were fair game, who could be tricked, who could be lied to, who could be destroyed could be sued, could be destroyed, that that was ethically proper, um, that he believed that. And he never, as far as I can see, ever came away from that. He just changed who the enemy was. And, right. and you were still dealing with them in the same way. Well, you know, the road to Damascus, for any of us, there could be that realization that, that the schema of ethics that we've believed in is wrong, that racism, gender apartheid, um, all sorts of things that people become involved in, um, white nationalism, these neo-Nazism, all of these strange permutations which are anti 
some other part of the human race, you know, and is suggesting that there is some difference between humans uh, so that some part of us should be persecuted. Maybe Mike needs to think about that too. And, you know, I'd certainly be very happy to talk with him about that, you know, as a somebody objectively, you know, rather than so I'm not concerned about anything he might have done to me. But, you know, maybe he has talked about it. Maybe he's called Rachel Bernstein up and, and worked all that stuff out. I don't know. But I think we, we all do need to, you know, keep the accounts. And, you know, it, it's not, am I going to go to heaven because I've been a good boy? It's, you know, is, is it good to have a clear conscience? I had only one thing on my conscience for nine years in Scientology because I was not on the staff. I didn't have to bully anybody and I wasn't bullied, you know, except for them trying to bully money out of me, which I didn't have anyway. So that wasn't too, too bad. But one thing happened. I employed a, a former Elron Hubbard aide to work in my little art promotion business down in East Grinstead. And one day I came in and during that week, my wife, my first wife had failed to sell a painting. She hadn't sold anything that week. And he was in a tiny little, what we call a box room. It's a bedroom that's too small to be a bedroom, basically, that appended onto houses in this country for reasons nobody understands. Because um, we don't keep boxes in them either, you know, it's mad. Um, but we got it set up as an office, and he was in there sort of two inches away from us, screaming his head off at her. Now, I'd never witnessed a severe reality adjustment. It was during my last year in Scientology, and it took me three days to sit him down and, and say, what were you doing? Where's it written that you do that? If it isn't written, it isn't true. And he said, it's not written. And then he started weeping, put his head in his hands and said, Hubbard did it to us. And, you know, my move away from Scientology, you know, that, you know, I, I that really meant something to me that, that there was this guy who shouted at people to demean and diminish and traumatize them. And that could not be the leader of a positive group. It could not be. It, that would never be the behavior of, of a decent and evolved human being. To, so for years afterwards, I carried this thing that I had not stepped in and stopped him from doing this. And then about five years ago, I had a conversation with, with, with my ex-wife and, and said, you know, this is something that really bothered me. And she said, oh, I don't remember that. <laughs> So redemption may come from, you know, different places. True How much effects that. have had on somebody. No. True that. Good point. I think um, another aspect of this that I'm sort of thinking about that I wanted to bring up was um, the knowledge aspect of this. Or, you know, maybe that, that fits, you know, this fits under the, the empathy or um, part two, which is where I find it a lot easier to get into a forgiving frame of mind or move in that direction when I can understand what's driving a person. Yes. You know, probably, probably the best example of this, the most clear-cut, you know, black and white example that, that when I present it to people, they just go, oh, really? Is Charles Whitman, the Texas Tower shooter. Mm -hmm. um, right back in the, uh, I think it was the 60s, he uh, went up there and shot a whole bunch of people with a with a rifle and uh and and murdered uh like lots of kids and uh they had to go up there and and take him out and it was bad 
and he was a sharpshooter. He knew what he was doing, and he had a lot of he had guns up there. He had ammo. He came prepared. And you go, my God, you know, the serial killer, mass shooter, one of the first that we know of on record, sort of thing. You know, how, why, how could this be? You know, and then you find out, you know, years after the fact, of course, because at the time they had apparently no way of really figuring this out, or he he hadn't figured it out. They had to kind of back, you know, uh, investigate the whole thing based on his journals and stuff to find out. Oh, and an autopsy that he had a tumor in his head the size of a golf ball. And it had been driving him to violence. And he'd been inclined to violence already. Let's let's not, you know, let's not go too far off the the beam here. He he was a violent guy. He had tendencies in that direction. And then as the years progressed, you go through his journals and stuff and you see that it got worse and worse. And he literally, not figuratively, not kind of like with a little bit of oh gee, it's not no, he really couldn't stop himself. It, you know, you could see the, the the sort of descent into madness through through the time, and um, and you learn that about him, and it does not in any way, shape, or form take away from the evil of the act. But when you understand that he really didn't have a whole lot of choice in the matter, based on everything we understand about the brain and and tumors and behavior and all of that. I mean, if we're really going to be honest about it, he didn't, you know, he was driven to that by forces that were completely out of his control. And once you learn that, you go, huh, that's, it's very difficult to still hold on to anger, hate towards him. You just go, oh man, you kind of pity, you know, is more the thing that comes to mind. And at the same time, without in any way reducing the evil of the act he committed, or the fact that he did commit it, or the fact that had he lived, had they not had to kill him, they absolutely could have, should have, and would have removed him from society. And removed the tumor from his head. Exactly. And then what we find with other cases on record is that, like, certain uh, pedophiles, for example, mm-hmm. is that that also brain tumors have been found to cause that kind of aberrant behavior. And then when they're removed, the desire for that behavior completely disappears. Mm-hmm. And you go, huh, so are we dealing with a moral problem or are we dealing with a physiological problem, right? That becomes a moral problem. And this is a societal problem. You know? It's set into a culture that, that in our legal systems throughout the Western world, you have these archaic Latin terms, mens rea, actus reus. Um, mens rea is the intention to commit the act, the mental part of it. And actus reus is the fact of having committed the act. And that if somebody is judged incompetent in mentally, then they did not commit a crime. And uh, this gets really fascinating when you look at uh, particular cases. Um, is it P- Peter, I think, Sutcliffe, who's called the Yorkshire Ripper in this country, who I think murdered seven women. And um, he took a plea of insanity. And the decision, I think the judge was very sensible. I think, you know, you have this uh, criminal insanity is the possibility that the judge can go for. And so he basically said he needs to be locked up forever. 
Um, but of course, the idea is if he's insane, that if he ceases to be insane, then the law is challenged. And he did cease to be insane. A couple of years ago, it was determined that he's no longer insane. And the poor man, quite deservedly, was then sent to prison because you know, we ain't going to let you out. We don't care what he said. But I've long felt that we should judge by the act, find the person guilty or not of the act, and then bring in mitigate, mitigation or to make milder the circumstances of that particular person. And I think with anybody, say Hitler, Hitler's quite interesting. People have written about his rotten childhood. Uh, Stalin didn't have a very nice childhood either. And that, so that originally when the term sociopath and psychopath were being used, the, when Robert Hare wrote about it in the early 90s in Without Conscience, the great expert on the subject, he said, well, these words mean a psychopath means that you think that it's the individual's responsibility that they are the way they are. And a sociopath just means exactly the same thing, but you think society, it was the situation that drove them to it. He revised that, and his more recent definition is that a psychopath is the hardcore end of the scale, and a sociopath is a lesser form of psychopath. But it was very much the argument, were psychopaths being created by society? Well, I'd say, let's start with the act. Let's start with what they did and what we must do to make sure that they don't do it again, whether they are held responsible or not. It's a very easy argument with Ron Hubbard to say that he suffered a parental neglect. His mother was unloving. His father was away. Um, he grew up in a domineering grandfather's household. I don't believe the tales about sexual abuse that people have fabricated because none of the material that I've seen uh, about his childhood would lead me in that direction. You know, I had somebody try to persuade me that Commander Thompson must have you know, had sexual relationship. And it was like, well, his relationship with Commander Thompson, as best Russell Miller and I could work out, lasted about three days. And it was on a boat going through the Panama Canal. There is no note of them ever spending time together again. And why we should presume that Commander Thompson, who has nothing else to blemish his record, you know, unless you think the study of snakes is a bad thing, why? why he should be, you know, oh, because it's a personality traced in Hubbard that must have come from this place. Well, no, I don't think so. I think Hubbard, we could justify everything he did. We could say he had temporal lobe epilepsy, as Yuval Or, I think, has pretty well demonstrated. I went through all 18 traits of the Bafidio thing, and I found 17 of them straight away that Hubbard had. Hypographia, you know, can't stop writing. Come on, Guinness Book of World Records says he's the most prolific author of well, all we Yeah, Yuval and I went over it on this very podcast. Yeah. I mean, and I went through all the traits. I mean, it was it was pretty clear that, you know, there's a very strong case to be made for that. Yeah, I mean, and after, after that, um, Yuval was contacted by a guy who'd been a um, an Ivy League professor of neurology who'd actually been there on the day that temporal lobe epilepsy was first announced in the 1970s. And he happened to have had as a hobby, which he'd never talked to anyone about, weird hobby, collecting material about Ron Hubbard and Scientology. As an outsider, he was just fascinated by them. And he contacted you and he said, you're right. I'd never thought about it. You know? Oh, my God. That is the neurologist, you know, knew that. So we could say that, but we also have to say, well, he seemed to be bipolar. Um, we'd also have to say he was paranoid. Um, 
you know, there are all of these things going on. But the thing we can also say about Ron Hubbard is that from his teens, he was solipsistic. You know, he was totally self-involved. There is no concern for any other human being in those famous, the three famous diaries that Scientology put into the Armstrong case and then were given to me and I released to the world. Uh, thank you very much for doing that, David Miscavige. Uh, because it showed us what he was saying when he was a teenager, with, unblemished by anybody's opinion, and that he was, you can see, he's a kid, he doesn't care about anybody but himself, um, doesn't have a nice word to say, he, he, he's putting down everybody as he goes along, and he grew into an adult who was the same way. Is that the fault of society? Is it the fault of his parents? Is it the fault of his brain? I say, start with the act start with what was done, then if there's some way we can redeem this person, and we're talking about redemption here, there's some way we can redeem this person, let's do that. I would rather that if we're going to let people out of prison, that they have been rehabilitated, than that they have been tormented, tortured, and trained in the arts of crime, so that they're more dangerous than they were when they went in. Um, I would also say that you lock the door and throw away the key with some people, because they've killed too many people or they've you know it doesn't matter what they do that they, they can be you know Burt Lancaster in the Birdman of Alcatraz or what have you that's great you know and they can do something wonderful and great from their prison cell but I wouldn't let them out again uh whether it was you know whatever the cause was unless maybe it was a brain tumor because then once you've removed it you are actually dealing with a different person so you might give them a little more time to see how they settled down but um that's right and and those those kind of mitigating factors or or i don't even want to use the word mitigating i just want to say those kind of factors the kind of things are things that we you know rarely seem to obviously emotionally when you're in the heat of the moment nobody takes any of this stuff into account and that's totally understandable in the shock and awe of a horrible event you know, if the first thing you're thinking of is how can I redeem this person, it's probably, you know, maybe not completely the appropriate thought to be having at that no, moment. No. Um, however, you know, a human beings being who they are and, and us going through our little cycles of emotion that we go through, you know, calmer heads must prevail and we must, you know, after the initial shock of everything, you have to really kind of sit and look at the whole picture. And the whole picture does include societal elements. It includes personal elements. It includes education. You know, things, things that we all acknowledge now are completely out of anybody's control from year zero through 13. I don't know. You know, at what point do you actually be able, are you actually able in modern society, Western society I'm talking about now, I cannot speak intelligently about life growing up in, you know, India or Indonesia or something or Africa. I've never been there. I don't know what the cultures are like there. But I do know in Western culture, there's no pushing back. You know, I mean, you are a cog in a, on a wheel in a system. And uh, depending on where you're born, depending on the economic, socioeconomic situation that you're born into, what school you go to, what your, what your skin color is, what your culture is, these things are going to have overwhelming effects on who you end up being, and you were never consulted on one of those things. 
They're it's surprising, surprising that most violent crimes are committed by men who have the advantage in such situations. I think, <laughs> think the women would be a lot more pissed off about it. <laughs> yeah, you'd think, right? So, so we, so it's not a matter of like we're trying to. I'm not trying to approach redemption or or forgiveness from the point of view of how can we make a person not responsible for their actions. Mm -hmm. No. Under any circumstances, I believe we are always responsible for our actions. No. We committed them. It wasn't somebody else who did it, you know? Um, but you then look at, oh, yeah, but why? Hmm. You know, why? And was there a, was it a moral reason? Was it a, was it an ethical reason? Or was it some off the rails, anti-social, anti-society? You just, you, you're a round peg in a square hole here and we got to kind of, separate you from the herd and figure out what to do with you kind of a reason. Mm. That's the kind of thing I think we could spend a lot more time looking at. I think our, our, I think our legal system needs a whole lot of revision based on what we're learning now about people and why and how they act versus the, you know, <laughs> the, the old Latin and the, sorry, I mean, our, our legal system is kind of at best 17th, 18th century mm. in philosophy while we have moved on through an enlightenment. You know, and we have, and we are now developing real social sciences. And yeah, they are in their infancy, their baby steps. There, there's so much we don't get, but the little bit we do get, we should start using that. You know, absolutely. And, uh, and I think we can build a better society if we could do that. If we can look at prisons, I mean, this is a whole other discussion. I'm, I'm only going to skirt around this one, but if we could, if we could look at prisons as, you know, not places where it's an eye for an eye, is the philosophy driving? prison, which is how it is now, and it's certainly in the United States, um, if not just outright slave trade. Um, yeah, instead, if we could look at them more on what I think some European models of, of real rehabilitation, you know, but this isn't particularly a conversation about rehabilitation, it's more about redemption. And these hmm. things are obviously hand in hand, but they are different. So yes, it's true. Yeah. And, and a deep subject, huh? It is. And, and certainly, you know the the legal system. You know, having had far too much to do with it, um, I consulted to a lot of cases over the years, about 150, and I came to a fairly pessimistic view that every now and then you would have somebody like um, Justice Breckenridge in in the first Armstrong case, or yep. Mr. Justice Lady, who a month later decided to take a family case public. And rule, which is, I think, was unprecedented. I don't think it had ever happened because they have no precedental value. They're not publicly shared and gave a 54 page ruling in open court. And what they both showed, um, the uh, Casey Hill case in Canada as well, which doesn't seem to have been much talked about, you know, where a judge won a case for libel in, I think, 1993. You have very intelligent discussions, some of the IRS rulings, very intelligent discussions about what's happened and what Scientology is and how it might be seen. But quite often you'll find a judge choking on some little technical point, you know, at the end of um, the Tichborne Christofferson case, that poor woman. Perfect example, by the yeah, way, because talk the, about the stupidest technicality. Yeah, the judge decides that the... Uh, her lawyer shouldn't have been able to instruct the jury that Scientology was not a religion, even though it actually had no religious status at that time in the US. 
and that he was therefore reversing. And I think it was the third time the trial had been heard. And this poor woman thought she was going to get her, what, $35 million at last and got diddly squat uh, right. after such effort. And, you know, we also lost all of the transcripts. Only the Howard Shomer testimony was available from that case, which was a remarkable piece of testimony, by the way, Homer Shomer's testimony there. But so we lost everything because a judge chickened out. Then you hear about judges who had to recuse themselves because their dog was drowned and Scientology admitted they'd done it. That was Richie, I think, did that. These, all of these things that show you how you can mess with the legal system because of a certain corruption that is part of that system. And, and I personally would say that part of that is the incredible amount of money that is to be made by, by doing something that is actually really not that complicated, you know, and that it's still adversarial. There's still the idea of, you know, you have your champion, I have my champion, and they do battle. So I was involved in, in, in a case where a young man had, had basically uh, tried to kidnap a, a woman. Um, he'd inflicted damage, only a scratch perhaps, but with a penknife on this poor guy. He'd had a big dog, you know, all of this. He confessed everything. And here, here he was in court. The barrister, and, and here a barrister means a trial attorney, that they solicitors prepare cases, so the barristers are the big guys. He'd never met the guy. He came in on the first, you know, the first morning of the trial and ordered him to take his waistcoat off because this lad had put on a fancy waistcoat thinking that would impress the judge perhaps. And then basically spent most of his time out of court, you know, in the breaks with me, without the solicitor, asking me for things that, that were basically ridiculous about Scientology. So he asked the witnesses, you know, so you've signed a, a billion-year contract. Is that a thousand million or a million million years? You know, and he made them look ridiculous. The young man didn't go on the witness stand because he had previous. Uh, you know, he had convictions already. Um, and he would later, actually, he settled a civil suit with Scientology where he completely admitted he'd done it. But it took the jury only seven minutes to decide unanimously that he was not guilty. So seeing the way that a lawyer can lead a jury to a conclusion, which is, you know, I came away from that, you know, I, had, I needed a little bit of redemption for myself going, well, you know, I was hired and paid to provide information. It's, it wasn't up to me how the argument was made, but I still feel it's wrong that, that he got away with this. You know, and he didn't. Yeah. In the end, he had to admit it in a civil suit and make a statement. But he, he got a, got away lightly, let's say, compared to what may have happened to him otherwise. And the, the law is an ass, as has been said. Um, Basically, yeah. And that's that's probably something worthy of another episode or two, actually, because, um, you know, the undue influence and coercive control that occurs in interrogations much less when you're leading a jury down a, a, a fanciful road. I mean, there's a lot to talk about there. But yeah. let's let's go ahead and pull back from that for a second, because I want to get back onto the main line and sort of yeah. wrap this up. And I think that we've made some very good points here. I think the thing I wanted to ask you about last on this and getting right back onto forgiveness and redemption is, 
you know, are these things, you know, that, that I've, I posited earlier, you know, well, forgiveness is about, for me, it's, it's about me and letting go and, and, yeah. and, you know, and that, and certainly I agree with you that, you know, forgetting is not part of that process. Forgive is forgive. It's not forgive and forget, you know, I, I don't forget <laughs> either. Um, but are these things really how we find closure or, you know, are there other ways that we might go about doing that? Or is this pretty much it? Well, I mean, can you let it go without having to forgive the person? Yeah, I think I think you probably can. I, I mean, there was a survey done of um, former inmates of concentration camps in the 1970s, late 1970s. And it was found that with or without any kind of treatment or counseling, these people had many of them come to terms with what happened to them and moved on. That the post-traumatic stress had gone. It was, of course, something that was always with them. I mean, there is a famous case. There was a guy who was in Dachau who actually moved. He came from Dachau and he moved back into his house. And people said, how can you possibly live here? And he said, well, I've always lived here. What are you talking about? So people have different levels of, of resilience. There's the need to let go of what's been done to you and say, that's not the most important thing in my life anymore. You know, there are, there are relationships I can have. There are things that I can do with my life, which are, which are positive. And there's the need on, on the other side of the person who's done something bad to be redeemed and that that can be a different thing that 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 person may need to explain what they've done confess to what they've done and they may need to seek the forgiveness of people they've harmed before they can feel reconciled and uh, you know that's probably a positive drive uh, where it where it occurs yeah i think that's true I think it's true. I think like with all things, it's probably pretty individual for each of us and obviously mm. context specific. Very much so. Yes. Yeah. Boy, wouldn't the world be a better place if all those big broad generalities were actually true all the time? Yeah, it's, it's so <laughs> wonderful. Simpler. We could impose order on, on the whole universe. And, yes, uh, a, a and new world up. order. Uh, <laughs> brave new world order yeah. that's right that's right well john i i just wanted to contemplate some of these ideas for a bit and and bounce the ball back and forth a bit you've been wonderful with this thank you very thank much you. for for contributing your time and attention to this this issue i think uh I think this is important for a lot of reasons and at a lot of levels and at different places along the recovery path for people as they come out of these high control groups or destructive relationships or any kind of real situation of abuse. So I hope that maybe some of these ideas have, have given some reason for thought or, you know, some food for thought here. I don't know. Any, uh, any final words? No, I don't think so. Beyond the, the idea that for me, redemption has, has been a very significant idea through most of my adult life and that, that in in looking at other people, I hope for their redemption. I hope that, that they can come to terms with what they've done. You know, I hope that when Mark Rathbun watches this, um, that, that they can admit what they've done to themselves. And, um, you know, I think no matter how bad 
somebody's offences against humanity have been, that if they they can take positive, you know, rather than saying, oh, I'm, you know, there's nothing of me, I should just kill myself, that, that it is possible to take any experience we've had and help people with it. So, for example, uh, there's a book, I think it's called Confessions of a Sociopath um, by this woman. It's a horrible book. Uh, I didn't manage to, to finish it because, you know, it, but she is so open about how she feels about things. You, she couldn't care less. And um, she will actually cause harm because it amuses her. And so there's a, you know, a, a sort of courage there in sharing this with us so that we can better understand. Um, yeah. And maybe a little slice of redemption for her there, but uh, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, interesting subject. Very, yes. very interesting subject. There's, there's just a lot to think about with this one on both sides, you know, on the forgiver and the forgivee. And we, 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 we tend to stress one side of that equation. I wanted to put some, I wanted to put some look at the other side, you know, at the forgiver, hmm. you know, rather than the, the, the guy who's done all the bad stuff, you know? Yeah. All right. Well, interesting. All right, man. Well, I would like to hear from you guys out there too. You know, any questions, comments, or feedback on this good, bad, sideways, agree, disagree, you know, let us, let us know, let us know what you think. We'll take a look at it. And, uh, you know, just like I, like I always kind of ask, and as you guys have been really wonderful, actually, since I started asking this, this has really changed the tenor of a lot of the comments on my channel. Please just don't be insulting in your comments. You know, <laughs> if you're going to comment on the, on the show, you got some feedback for us. I want to know, but I don't want to be insulted in the process. <laughs> so, so please be respectful. All right. That may have been if you are a grandiose narcissist and you want to boast about your having a much better understanding of these issues than we do, we would love to hear from you and we'll pillory and ridicule you in response. So <laughs> don't hold back. You know. Perfect. Perfect. All right, guys. Also, I uh, just want to put a little plug in here. I am not, um, I'll probably talk about this elsewhere somewhere, uh, but just to throw this in a podcast, I'm not going to turn channel memberships on as a method of support for my channel. YouTube ad revenue is kind of crashing right now for everybody because mm -hmm. uh, of the COVID-19 situation. This is going to be a long-term situation. So if you are enjoying what I'm doing here on this channel and with this podcast and my content, please do seriously consider supporting me through Patreon. The link is below in the description section of every one of my videos. And it is the thing that keeps these lights on and this little soundboard going and this mic on and everything else and allows me to keep talking to you guys. So um, check that out. And that all being said, I will see you guys next week. Thanks for coming around. Bye-bye.